This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. In today's episode, we're going to be continuing in our series on developing a solid sense of self or finding the self or what it means to have a self, all of those deep questions that we seek. And sometimes we're seeking those in therapy, other times we're we're just seeking those. We long to have some answers or some feelings around those types of questions. So we're going to be continuing that series in this episode today. I also wanted to just circle back to something I've talked about in a couple of recent podcast episodes, and I believe it came up in my last episode when I was reading a part from one of Gabor Monte's books. And if I'm remembering correctly, he was talking about how, you know, some of our emotions, if they weren't able to come out in childhood, or if we weren't able to express things or something along those lines that, you know, sometimes it, what it can look like in adulthood when it starts to come out. And he talked about, you know, raging in traffic or, you know, being stuck in traffic and something along those lines. And I know I have mentioned that. I think I even said in the podcast, like, oh yeah, look, I have mentioned that this happens for me. And it happens a little bit different for me because I think I, and I've said this in the podcast episodes, like I'm not big on honking the horn or even sometimes in the past I used to flip people off, but then that didn't always feel safe because I don't know who these people are and you know, road rage is a thing and I don't want anybody, I don't want to compromise my own safety by doing that. And I'm not really an aggressive driver. So since last week when that was in Gabor's writings, literally, and I have been acknowledging that and talking about that, I was just thinking, you know, over the week, my mind every so often would wander back to that and I would think about that. And it's not that I you know, when I say I'm I'm not really an aggressive driver, I don't honk the horn, I don't flip people off, I, you know, I, I it's not that I feel some pride in being somewhat contained or being able to, you know, rein my rage in or something like that. Because I, I think I've acknowledged, I feel it. I feel it internally. It's just not something that necessarily comes out. And I was uh, thinking about that. This week, you know, one of the thoughts that I had, and it relates to this episode of seeking to develop a sense of self and understand who we are and how we are and why we are the way we are, all of those deep questions too. When I was thinking about it, you know, one of the things, one of the pieces of my story that I think I've been articulating the language, maybe finding the language for in the past, I don't know, four months, maybe, maybe six months. And, and it has to do with that same example that I give when I'm driving. I just hadn't connected that to this language that I've been working on in my own therapy with my own therapist and just trying to understand some pieces of my story. And that rage that I feel in driving is 
I think, such a great example of what I've been trying to find language for. And not that it's really about driving. It's not about driving. But often, when I was growing up, it was safer for me to experience my anger internally. If that was expressed, that could lead to a bigger argument that I had no control over and that might be dangerous. It just wasn't... I mean, certainly there were six kids in our family. Certainly there were times that we brought our own emotions to the table and and contributed to whatever chaos resulted. But it was also one of those things I think that most of us learned to try not to do that, to try to avoid bringing our emotions to the table, at least any outward signs of it. At least for me, I should just speak for me because I haven't talked about this with any of my siblings. Well, I had a conversation maybe two months ago now with one of my siblings about it. And when I expressed it, maybe that was the first conversation where I said those things out loud and I was like, oh, wow, that's that's language that I've been looking for. And, you know, my sister that I was talking on the phone with kind of said, wait a minute repeat what you just said, say that again. And, you know, again, I didn't even know if I could because that was the first time I had that language for it. At least, you know, spoken out loud. Maybe in my head something was coming together, but to speak it out loud that way. So I kind of paused thinking like, okay, wait, what was the language I just used? How did I just articulate that? And I think she misinterpreted my pause and was like, I'm not disagreeing. I just need to think about that, but I need to hear you say it again so that I can think about it. And I was able to kind of put together, you know, I I think a pretty close version to what I had said in the moment. And what that was, was, you know, I I think one of the things for us growing up is my, my mom was a very intelligent woman. She was smart and she was also socially wise. And the conversation we had been talking about how our family, what one of the things that we learned was that we had to kind of live a facade. And so I was kind of saying how difficult that has been for me, sorting out what is the facade and what is real and what is both and, you know, just kind of confusing. And my sister was talking about that. Like, yes, we had to, we had to put up a front. And in that conversation, I said, but like, we, it couldn't actually look like it was a facade or it couldn't actually look like it was a front because mom was smart enough to pick up on that. And that would have made her upset. That would have made her angry. That would have said to her something that I don't know that she could handle what that reflection back to her was. And so it couldn't just be a facade and that all of us got on board maintaining that facade. Yes, it was a facade and we had to be able to pull off that we didn't think it was a facade, that we believed the truth of the facade. That messes with your brain. I'm just telling you right now, that is confusing to try to sort out. And so with this example of the car that, again, you can tell it's come out in, I don't know, maybe two or three episodes, I think, where I've mentioned that, that is me trying to find some language and not realizing that that example that I've talked about a couple of times is a very good example of actually what I was trying to find the language for. 
And that is that, you know, that it's, it's not that I can contain my rage so well because I'm, you know, so enlightened or so evolved in my own work. That is my story. I had feelings and I couldn't let on that I actually had feelings. Not in my family. It wasn't safe. And so what the external looked like was very different from the internal, which is probably what it looks like when I'm really angry in traffic. You can't tell. You can't tell by the way I drive. You can't tell by any actions, really, I think, that I demonstrate as a driver. But internally, I am so angry. And so anyway, I just wanted to circle back. I thought, you know, well, I've been kind of figuring that out on the podcast, although I didn't fully recognize that I was figuring that out. I just thought I was giving an example of myself. And again, as we're talking about developing a sense of self, I think there is a lot of going back to things or looking at things in our present that hold cues to our past that we need in order to unfold and develop and finish what is unfinished in us. Several months ago, one of my clients that I work with and have worked with for several years introduced me to a quote by E.E. E. Cummings that I've thought about that I loved when he first said it. I looked it up and got a little more context around what E.E. E. Cummings was saying when he said this quote. And I think about this quote a lot and I wanted to share it. I thought this is a good episode to share it on. So E.E. E. Cummings said, quote, May I be I is the only prayer. Not may I be great or good or beautiful or wise or strong. Today, may I be me. Five foot 11, brown hair, brown eyed, smart, serious, happy, frustrated, impatient, joyful, running, sleeping, smiling, eating, trying, believing, listening, being, and becoming. And I just, I love that quote from E.E. E. Cummings and especially just that, I love the whole quote, right? The whole length of the quote. But I really like, may I be I is the only prayer. Now, I also think that that original prayer, may I be I, is often lost in the turmoil and gravity of our own experiences and sometimes our own darkness that results from our own experiences. I know, you know, for me, and sometimes I will ask clients that I'm working with, or we had this discussion come up in our men's group last year, I think it was, where we were talking about a scenario where there's a young child and we see that that young child is in danger. It was kind of written out, something that I read. And, you know, we place ourselves between the threat that's coming and that child. You know, we do all that we can to ensure that we are protecting that child, even if the situation could be life-threatening to us ourselves. And most of my clients, most everyone in the group could identify a time that they acted on behalf of a child. Maybe it was their child. Maybe it was a different child that wasn't, you know, their own son or daughter. And most people would agree that, yeah, that I hope, if I was in a situation where I saw a child in danger, I would kind of instinctively move to act on behalf of that child. Yet what we would commit to for a child often 
we struggle to do or we can't commit to do for the child within us. With some of my clients, when we're working on that child within us work, some of them really don't like that younger self. Uh, Some clients hold a lot of anger or shame or blame at that younger self. Other clients are a little more indifferent. Maybe they're not angry at that younger child. Maybe they're like, yeah, that younger child's fine, but they don't necessarily feel a connection to that younger child. They don't necessarily have a lot of emotions around that younger child. Um, and, And some of my clients, I would say this is not the majority some of my clients, you know, yeah, they they would say, yeah, I, I like my younger self. I think my younger self is good, fine. But there still seems to be a divide between that younger self and the current self or the adult self. Shafali Sabari talks about in her book, The Awakened Family. She describes how families take childhood dreams and talents and bend them or discard them to fit their version of reality or family concerns or needs. So the family will take, you know, our own childhood dreams and maybe natural talents and bend and shape them or whatever for what the family needs from us, whether that's a successful career, whether that's to be scapegoated, whether that's, you know, whatever that role is that our family requires of us. And she calls that the great forgetting in her book, which I love the way she frames that, you know, just this great forgetting of who we were, who we had the potential to be, who we were as the original child, as Marilyn Murray refers to it in her work. Often we know, uh, Dr. Carnes writes about how busy parents and just events in life can obscure some of those early desires that children have or early talents or early potentials that children have. Alice Miller, in her book, the drama of the gifted child described this as the theft, brutalization, or denial of these original inclination that gives power to wounded feelings and could lead to addiction. As we know now, trauma and shame are not just toxic thoughts. Over time, they become encoded as biological realities. They are etched into the synapses of the brain. Massive scientific evidence shows that these dark events are encoded at a cellular level. Even when cells reproduce, the message is carried forward in the new cells. Like circles in the core of a tree that encode the impact of the year, the tree will always know. The human body is the same. It does keep score. Voices of the past are often more than voices of the past. They become us. Dr. Carnes states in his newer workbook, Recovery Zone, Volume 2, He says, quote, I now have had some firsthand experiences with the power and value of those early inclinations. After Recovery Zone 1 was finished, my wife of 20 years, Suzanne, died. When we met as single parents, we had seven children between us and ultimately 10 grandchildren. One of those was a granddaughter named Kieran, who at the time was six, going on seven. She was a very gifted first grader. She had an older sister who had blazed a trail in high school of many accomplishments. Yet Kieran's talents were very different. She admired her sister, but was already determined not to walk in her sister's shadow. After the funeral, Kieran and her family stayed with me at our cabin in northern Minnesota. It was Christmas time, and the snow, the smell of pine trees, and the presence of family was a great comfort to me. 
Kieran's parents came to me concerned for Kieran because she was having difficulty sleeping. The issue was that Kieran knew how proud Suzanne was of her sister Brianna and all of her achievements. Kieran wanted her grandmother to see who she was and all she was about, but now her grandmother would not be able to see it. She felt cheated by her grandmother's early death and being denied that affirmation. He continues, I understood that, but was at a loss about how to help her through that. I had the task of sorting through Suzanne's clothes and personal items as part of post-funeral realities, and I asked Kieran to help me through this painful task. As we sat there touching the things that Suzanne had touched, her energy was around us. I asked Kieran about her sorrow and her sleep. She told me about profoundly wanting her grandmother to know her the way she had gotten to know Brianna. I shared the history of the naming ceremonies of Native American tribes and how elders were more than just old people. They had many responsibilities, but one special task was to watch their young ones with great care. Then at about age six, the character traits, abilities, interests, and behaviors were discussed at length by the elders. At that time, a new name was given in a ceremony that reflected the true nature of the person. I shared with Kieran that Suzanne and I were the elders of her clan. We watched our young carefully. I told her of the many conversations her grandmother and I had about her. I was very specific about how Suzanne would remark about how creative and witty Kieran was. I told Kieran that Suzanne was impressed at how disciplined and determined she was and how Suzanne often speculated about her artistic abilities. Kieran and I spent a couple of days together sorting and talking. I'm not sure who helped who more. I do know that Kieran started to sleep soundly and that I got through Christmas. He continues, the bottom line is how important early acknowledgement of the inclinations and strengths of a young person is. Already the DNA pulls energy like little tuning forks that tell the body how to develop and call for the strengths and abilities that person is to have. By age six, Kieran's natural inclinations had started to emerge and she knew them already. When I brought those specific examples up, she knew that Suzanne saw them as well. Sometimes we laughed and sometimes we cried, but she knew that her grandmother saw her and knew her in the way she wanted to be seen and known. Kira knew enough about life to know she needed that validation. And as an elder of the tribe, I was a witness to her reality. And through me, Suzanne was also a witness. Being a witness, is sometimes all that we can do, all that is necessary and enough. Now, maybe for some of you, you had a grandparent who was like that for you, who could witness things for your younger self and then you lost them. And that's been a big wound in your life or that happened a long time ago and it's hard to remember how they saw you and what they knew about you and how much they loved you. And maybe for some of you, you did not have a grandparent like that. And that wasn't something that the elders of your tribe offered for you. And maybe they offered something more damaging. Maybe they put negative labels onto you or labeled your behavior as something that we would see as negative. And that's a layer that you're having to work through that is not in line with the true inclinations you had as a child. There was a time when my third daughter was five. She was in kindergarten, which would put my youngest daughter at like two. And 
And during that time, we had we were selling a house and we were building a house. And we had sold our house a little earlier than we had expected. It sold quicker than we had anticipated. And our house that we were building was taking a little bit longer than we had anticipated. And so we made the decision to move in with my mom. And, you know, we were hoping it would be a month. I was hoping it would be a week. And it turned out to be, I think it was like three months that it took for our house to be completed and finished before we could move in. And during that time, so my, you know, five-year-old, she's one of uh, my daughters that even my daughters will say she is the most like you, mom. And I've heard that about her since she was very young. You know, sometimes just even, I remember once she was maybe 11 or 12 and I would think I was at Target and ran into somebody that I hadn't really seen, I think since elementary school. And, you know, my daughter was off a little ways. I might've recently shared this. My daughter was off a little ways um, looking at clothes, I think in the Target, you know, women's area or teen area or wherever we were. And she started walking, you know, towards me. And this person I hadn't seen since elementary school was like, oh my gosh, is that your daughter? And I turned and saw her and I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's my third daughter. And she was like, she is so much like you. Her mannerisms, just watching her walk towards us, like I felt like I was back in time and seeing you at that age. And I thought that was kind of weird. Like I was just like, I don't even know if I remember things like that about people. Like, I don't know if I could tell you the mannerisms of my high school friends, let alone people I haven't seen since elementary school. But anyway, this daughter has often people have said, you know, she looks like me. I think I was telling this version of a story a couple episodes ago. And so I think it was a different part of that story, maybe with a similar beginning. So we were living with my mom. Now, something to know about daughter number three is, you know, she was born a month early. She didn't really have any problems, but as I kind of got to know her as an infant and toddler and as a young girl into her teen years, what I determined was that's just how she is. She just does things on her own time frame and does what she wants when she wants. It doesn't matter if she's due at the end of the month. She's coming at the beginning of the month. And that's just been her personality. She's an early riser. She's a go-getter. And then she crashes and sleeps. And that's still pretty true today, I would say. Not a whole lot has changed in that area. And so when she was young, she was hard. She took a lot of energy. She took a lot of parenting time, just keeping up with her, you know, and it wasn't like I didn't have any other children. I had other children and she was just, she demanded a lot of energy because she was constantly going. And so we're living with my mom and seeing my mom interact with her was a little too much of a flashback for me. It was really hard during that time period living with my mom during those three months. My mom fought a lot with my five-year-old and I was like, are you kidding me? She's five. Like, what do you have to fight with a five-year-old about? I mean, sure, she is high energy. I have to work hard to keep up with her and even try to predict where she's going and what moves she's going to make. But 
what are you going to fight with her about? Like, plus I'm like, mom, you're going to lose that fight. Like I know her, you're going to lose that fight. They would fight about, you know, I mean, my mom's kitchen table, I think it only sat six. And so we had seven. And I think at one point it sat more because obviously my family was a family of eight. So it had to seat at least eight, but maybe she had taken a leaf out or something just to have more room in her kitchen and didn't want to add it back once we'd moved in, which was fine. But it also meant that we had to bring in another chair for our dinners if we were having sitting down and having dinner together. And, you know, my mom would often fight. Daughter number three thought it was great. She always wanted to sit in the chair that wasn't actually a dining kitchen chair. And she loved to bring in the desk chair from my mom's office. She liked to, you know, I mean, they weren't fancy chairs that she was bringing in. It's not like she was bringing in some, you know, living room chair or something. And my mom would fight with her about it. And I would just think like, why, why do you care? Like, obviously we need another chair. The office chair makes the most sense. She loved that it had wheels and she could kind of, you know, twirl and move around while she was eating, which she had to be moving. And my mom would argue like, well, what if your sisters want it? They didn't. They were like, I'm fine. I never quite understood why that was a fight that commonly my mom picked with her. Like probably several times a week they would have that argument. And rarely did my mom win. But for me, it brought back a lot of memories. And not necessarily like what we think of as picture memories, although it did bring some of those back, but just more feelings Like I felt what my five-year-old felt. She didn't have to tell me how she felt. I knew how she felt because I had felt that way. I don't even think I knew that. I told my husband when he had suggested moving in with my mom, I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. It was the best option we had really, but it wasn't a good option. And maybe it would have been okay if it had been a week as I was hoping, or a month as he was hoping, but it wasn't. And, you know, during that time period, apparently when I was young, I think as a, maybe as a calming behavior, although it often would hurt, I would like pick my skin around my fingernails and kind of uh, tear it. Like I'd pick it to where I would tear it. And I mean, maybe hangnails, but they didn't start out as hangnails. I would just pick my skin. And I think it was anxiety and a way of trying to manage my anxiety totally start I noticed that I started that back up uh, when we were living with my mom and I was like where in the world is this coming from I think I was 35 I would have been 35 and I'm like picking my skin again it just wasn't a good situation I learned some things I remembered some things about myself and I was very protective of my daughter during that time period I was protective of all of my kids during that time period I remember one time we had gone to my grandma's house, so my mom's mom. I mean, again, my mom was smart. She was a teacher. My grandma had a pretty big aloe vera plant that, I mean, she'd been growing for years. And so daughter number three was with us. I think probably all three of my kids were with us. And, you know, my mom was kind of teaching them like, oh, look, this is an aloe vera plant. Look what you can do. And you can break it off and this comes out and it'll heal It'll help to heal burns or cuts that you have. And it just grows back. Like you don't ruin the plant, right? And I don't think I knew my mom was saying this or I could have gotten ahead of that pretty easily. I would have known if we 
left daughter number three in the room with the aloe vera plant, I easily could have predicted what happened. But I don't think I was actually in the room when my mom was telling my kids that. So I think I was probably in the kitchen talking to my grandma or something. And daughter number three gets left in the other room with the aloe vera plant. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I hear this gasp from my mom and go in and, you know, there's this aloe vera plant just kind of broken in pieces and she's like just rubbing aloe vera all over her body, right? And I'm like, my mom was just like, I can't believe, like, she, I mean, she was really upset. You know, I was kind of like, what's going on here? And my daughter told me like, oh, grandma says this, right? And I'm like, yeah, totally makes sense to you. Totally makes sense to you. You don't think that you're ruining this plant because grandma literally told you, you can't kill it. It just grows back. But my mom, you know, I think it was later that night or something, my mom was telling me how concerned she was about her and she's just destructive and she could have killed that plant. And I knew by then I wasn't going to push back against my mom and tell her like, mom, this is what you did. She wasn't going to kill the plant. And what were you thinking? Like, this is what you told her. And then you walked out of the room and left her alone with this aloe vera plant. My grandma acted a little bit better. My grandma was like, oh, it'll grow back, which it did. But, you know, I remember my mom saying to me, like, Jackie, you need to do something or she will end up in juvenile delinquency. And I kind of was a little shocked by that and thought, no, she's not. She's not headed that direction. Yeah, she's curious. Yeah, she's willful. Yeah, she's determined. But why would you say that about her? So again, maybe you didn't have a grandparent who could witness your true nature and reflect to you the, the potentials they saw in you, the character traits that were original to you as a person. And that's part of healing is learning what those were, even if nobody ever spoke them to you. Maybe somebody outside of your family has spoken them to you. I hope if you're in therapy, your therapist has reflected some of those because my guess is if they're original to you, they're here in your present as much as they were in the past. Again, they might be covered with some other layers. We may be looking at them through very dirty windows, but they're there, right? Sometimes I talk about in 12 Steps when they talk about character defects, I like to think of character defects as our strengths, or in this instance, maybe we talk about them as our original character or our original self. But I think those characteristics when we're talking about character defects are actually just our strengths or our true self that got dialed up and overused or dialed down and underused just because that's what was required of us to get by and to cope. In one of Mark Nepo's book, The Endless Practice, he talks about engaging our soul in the world. He says, quote, we are shaped by the endless practice of becoming the person we were born to be. From the moment we open our eyes, we are meaning-seeking creatures, looking for what matters, though we carry what matters deep within us. And more than the hard-earned understandings we arrive at, more than the principles or beliefs we stitch together out of our experience, how we stay in relationship to the mysterious whole of life is what brings us alive and it's what keeps us alive. He says, quote, I believe everyone knows firsthand that life is messy and painful, beautiful and unpredictable. 
that we can't make careers of good running from bad or positive muffling negative, but that life is full of wonder and obstacle alike. He says, I remain devoted to the truth of that wholeness, even as I write this, as my wife Susan and I are grieving the death of our beloved dog, Mira, and I am still making sense of my father's death this past year. I find myself in the endless practice of keeping my heart open to the whole of it, and the journey of becoming who we were born to be never ends. It's limitless, eternal. We don't arrive, we grow. So he's talking later in this book about deep, timeless questions. He says, so what does it mean to be a soul in the world and to be our truest selves? These are deep, timeless questions that we need to live into more than answer. While there are many insights and stories that can help, the work begins as we find our way and keep each other from retreating from life. To bring who we are out and to let the world in is a brave and endless practice that clarifies and solidifies the gifts we are born with. There is no arrival point or destination here, only the chance to be more alive as we move closer to the mystery. What we can do is learn more specifically how to be a gardener of the soul, so it and we can keep growing. We can explore the difficult and rewarding aspects of being human, which are often interrelated, including how to restore our trust in life, when suffering makes us lose our way, how to begin the work of saying yes to life so it can enliven us, and how to make our inwardness a resource and not a refuge. He says this ever-changing practice of being human involves learning how to strengthen our heart by exercising it in the world and how to refine who we are through caring, building, holding, and repairing. To do this, he says, we must discover how to put down our old protections and stop interfering with the life force that wants us to open like a flower. In this very personal journey, we have the chance to find our faith between who we are and what we do. In talking about coming alive, he says, every day the heart keeps beating and the lungs keep breathing. Likewise, the endless practice of bringing our soul into the world lets us keep unfolding. It's a limitless journey of coming alive, which entails the messy, joyous, unfathomable drama of being human. Like it or not, life keeps engaging us, asking that we follow what is real until the light of the soul is drawn out of us and that we carry what is real until the depth of the world grounds us. By real, he says, I mean any moment met face to face and heart to heart without pretense or illusion. When we can follow what moves us, we break open what is possible and the light of the soul spills out of us. When we're moved to care and love, who we are extends into the world and we strengthen our roots. Often it's our love of life that gives us the courage to follow what is real and our love of others that gives us the courage to carry what is real. Of course, there's no way to escape the need to do both, to let out the light of the soul and to let in the depth of the world. The challenge is to inhabit both. He continues to handle both while we constantly struggle with achievement and failure, with our want for fame and our fear of anonymity. It's the heartful commitment to be completely who we are, no more, no less, that awakens us to the full beauty and truth of being alive. I like that he also talks in this book about how in the first half of life, he says, quote, in the first half of life, we take in more and let out less. But in the second half of life, we take in less and let more and more go. He says, quote, no matter what we dream or plan or think we're doing, 
we're all longing to make friends with being alive, to feel completely here with nothing in the way. I think those are moments that we can achieve, but it requires us to know ourselves and to understand ourselves, and to, I think, be engaged in our story, both in the present and in the past, but not in a way that keeps us from engaging in our life. Donald Woods Winnicott um, was a British uh, pediatrician and psychoanalyst. He was born in 1896 and died in 1971, so died just after I was born. He was especially influential in the field of object relations theory and developmental psychology. And I think it was in 1953, he coined the term good enough mother, where he described that there are benefits to infants and toddlers by, I think his framing was mothers who manageably fail them. So again, we, if we were to put that in language today, we would say, you know, not being a helicopter parent where we're overdoing for the child and not allowing them to figure out some things by themselves, but also just recognizing that, you know, no mother can be all and all for her child. And so when mothers fail, even young children, infants and toddlers, in a manageable way, a way that the infant and toddler can still manage, that actually, you know, he talked about how there is a benefit to the child. I mean, I think with trauma, we would say, you know, there was failing that was unmanageable for the child. So, like I said, he's famous for his work with mothers and children. And he uses the term unintegration to describe a part of healthy development that most infants or children go through. According to Winnicott, unintegration was important because it was a space where the child felt relaxed and safe enough to let go of feeling the need to hold themselves together and allow all of the pieces that made up the child, the ones that were solid, the ones that were growing, the ones were, that were just on a learning edge, all of the feelings, thoughts, experiences to come together so that the child could experience themselves as a whole. He described the typical scene of a toddler resting on their mother's lap. Maybe you've witnessed this with your own children or you know, with one of your nieces or nephews or a friend's child. So often at that age, you know, like I was describing with my daughter, they're busy, they're on the go, they're curious, they're exploring. But there's those moments, right? At the end of the day, maybe they've had their bath as a way of kind of winding them down, getting them clean from all that they've been exploring that day. And they're just, you know, sitting on your lap, kind of looking around. Maybe they're meeting eyes with the other people but not necessarily in a way that draws the attention to themselves. Maybe they're dozing from time to time, so they're a part of what's happening in the room, but they're also not the center of what's happening in the room. Winnicott defines unintegration as a resting state. Mark Epstein, who was a psychiatrist who writes about therapy and Buddhism, compares this resting state to meditation or a state of non-being. He says, in some ways, you can see this resting state as both a state of being, that is, being with whatever is, and a state of not being, in that you don't have to be anything in particular. And you allow yourself to bring all aspects of yourself together in one place. You rest in the hammock of yourself, without pulling yourself together. What supports this experience is a holding environment, Winnicott wrote about. In the book, Journey Through Trauma, 
by Gretchen Schmelzer. She tells a story about two temples at Abu Simbel that were built by King Ramses II during the 13th century BC, which had to be moved out of reach of the rising waters of Lake Nasser, created by the Aswan High Dam in the 1960s. She says, the two temples consisted of the Great Temple, dominated by a facade of 60-foot colossal statues of the king, and the Small Temple, which has four massive statues of Ramses and two of Nefertiti. In order to save the temples from being submerged by Lake Nasser, a multi-country, multi-agency partnership worked together to create a plan. This took much time, planning, and preparation, extensive geological and geotechnical investigation, and determination of internal stresses and locations of fissures in the sandstone were required. To support the integrity of the temple as they were dismantling it, they placed steady still scaffolding inside the temple rooms, put provisional landfill in front of each temple facade, and excavated and removed all of the rock above the temple. Extensive drawings were made of the temple from every vantage point, so that the moved temple would remain in relation to the cardinal points. The sun would grace the faces of the statutes in the same spot at the same time of day. The drawings would allow the blocks to be cut so that their size and weight could be assessed, as well as for the impact of what they were, faces of statues. But once the preparatory work was done, the group worked out a way to cut up both the temple facade and the temple walls into huge blocks. The sculpted faces were to be left whole when possible and no frieze separated at a place of particular fragility. The sanctuary ceilings, which had for generations held themselves together according to the basic principles of an arch, would slowly be sliced and stored, taking the arch effect with them. The smallest of the blocks weighed 20 tons. Each block was numbered and stored. After the blocks were moved to higher ground, both temples were reconstructed block by block. It was careful work. She uses this word unintegration, this author does, as part of the journey through trauma. She says, when we're working on healing from trauma, unintegration is not demolition, but it instead describes the coming apart that is both intended and supported. The temples at Abi Simbel were unintegrated. They did not disintegrate, nor were they knocked down. They were taken apart, attending to the weak spots in the wall and the vibrational force of the tools. They were dismantled carefully so that they could be put back together again in a stronger state. Each block that was removed was strengthened at the time of removal through reinforcement and was carefully inspected and wherever required, strengthened again. Unintegration is an important phase. It is about dismantling, but it is also strengthening. Towards the end of her book, Gretchen reminds us that unintegration depends on our ability to let go, to lean, and to trust. When our system feels sufficiently supported, it will venture toward the edge of our inner diving board and leap. We won't need to force it. She says, also, the plunge into the unintegration phase will usually come as a surprise. She says, the biggest piece of advice I can give you about the unintegration phase, no matter when you go through it, is it always catches you off guard. And therefore, it's always uncomfortable. It defies the logic of a learning curve. She says, you will swear that because you have been through this before, it should get easier, but it doesn't. 
It is the necessary shifting of inner tectonic plates that allows the pieces to come out, the pieces to get named, to come in contact with each other and heal. But inner earthquakes always rock the system. The more that we can be kind to ourselves and remind ourselves that this part always feels bad, the more tolerant we can be of the process and the more solid the healing process will be. One of the things that I've heard Dr. Patrick Carnes state several times when I've heard him speak is that when it comes to recovery, and I mean, he's talking about addiction recovery, but I think he's also talking about deeper recovery. I think he understands and believes that addiction comes from a place of trauma. So when we are talking about recovery, often it's a recovery from what happened that covered up our being able to feel and be who we are. It's also a recovery from what has happened to us. And it's also a recovering of what can be and who we are. So one of the things I've heard him say often is that while no one can do it for us, we also can't do it alone. And I truly believe that. I think when we are in a healing process, it is really important that we have other people who understand the process we're in. Maybe not exact details. Maybe they haven't shared um, the same storylines. Or maybe they have some familiarity with the storylines in our own story. But I think it works best if they have been on their own path of healing and on their own path of recovery and understand what we are undertaking ourselves when we are undertaking our own recovery. I think this also requires us to share when we're healing, when we're in therapy. For some reason, I think it's getting less of a taboo in the United States, but it has been a taboo for so long to acknowledge that we need therapy or to acknowledge that we are going to therapy or that we have gone to therapy. I think some of that taboo is being lessened in some cultures and in some communities, not in all. I think we still have a lot of work to do. But I think we need to understand that so often, you know, we can't do it on our own. Healing is also communal. And I think it's one of the things that helps us continue through our own healing process is understanding that we're not alone. We're not the only one who needs healing. We're not the only one who maybe felt broken or who had darkness within them based on experiences they had. We're not the only one. And when we understand that healing is communal, I think that helps us continue on our own path. Again, reading from, this is a different book from Mark Nepo. I think this one might be his most recent one. More Together Than Alone is the name of the book. I'm going to read from the chapter well, it's, I mean, his chapters are really just short stories. So, I mean, a chapter is maybe three or four pages. So I'm going to read from his chapter entitled, Let the Trauma Speak. And he starts out the chapter quoting, uh, I'm going to do the best I can with this name, Pumala Gaboto Madikizela. You're going to find out who that is in a minute when I'm reading part of this chapter. And trying to see here um, if we know if... The gender. I'll just say they say, Pumla says, quote, trauma is an experience that ruptures the sense of self. We lose our understanding of who we are. And so something remains unfinished within us. 
there is a lapse in our story. Now, again, this kind of takes me back to an earlier episode that we did in this series on the self, where I talked about how trauma repeats and attachment injuries repeat. And so if that is our story, we have to have an awareness that we're prone to repeat that story. And people who have good enough mothers, people who have good enough attachment figures early in their life, they also repeat that storyline. And that might not seem fair. And I don't know that we want to waste a lot of time with what's fair or what's not fair. I think we have to recognize which one describes us and set about doing the work to reclaim ourselves. Because if, if we did not have good enough attachment figures, if we experience trauma or the loss of attachment figures early in our life, that created a lapse in our story until we go back and finish what remains unfinished within us. I think I also mentioned in that earlier podcast that, you know, if we don't really have a solid sense of self, we will know that. And if we were to ask people who do have a solid sense of self, how did you get that? I don't know that they would know. And I said this at the time, like, if we could watch a movie of their life, which we can't, we might see things along the way that we're like, oh, that, that was helpful. Oh, we, we might be able to point out it even more so than they do because maybe they don't realize what they had. But not having had it or having the opposite of it makes us more aware of what was missing or maybe the privileges that they got by having those things. And so again, I think we could point that out maybe even better than they could. And they wouldn't necessarily feel like they don't have a solid sense of self. So again, if, if we're working on developing that solid sense of self, it does point to some trauma. Okay, so this is getting back to Let the Trauma Speak chapter that Mark wrote about. He says, There are two ongoing choices in response to adversity and trauma. We may unconsciously reenact our pain, reinforcing it, or we may work through it by consciously unraveling the pain, breaking apart our pattern of suffering and returning to a fresh perspective. The work for both the individual and the community is to face these questions. Now, let me add before I say what these questions are, he says, I think often we unconsciously reinforce that we reenact and we reinforce that pattern of pain, not understanding that's what we're doing. I think there come times where there are opportunities to exit and maybe get on the other plan of unraveling the pain consciously and working on that to have a different outcome. But I think sometimes those exit ramps come from the pain that we are, are experiencing over and over again by reenacting and reinforcing the pain pattern. So he says, the work for both the individual and the community is to face these questions. How do we find the lapse in our story caused by adversity or trauma? And how do we finish what is left unfinished in us? He says, in the Western model, therapy is chiefly a one-on-one -on -one affair, which has tremendous benefits. But most indigenous traditions, including the Native American tradition, have ceremonies and rituals that function as communal therapy. This opens another level of healing and transformation. Alone or together, this is the journey before us all, to live well and love well and to find each other. Finding each other through truth and kindness 
connects the individual's journey with the journey of the community. He says, this reminds me of a public learning ground in our time, South Africa. It was Nelson Mandela who said in the midst of his 27 year captivity on Robben Island, quote, we will make a university of our suffering, end quote. And in 1996, President Mandela created another experiment in what Gandhi called, forgive me with this pronunciation, satyagraha, which means grasping or holding the truth, which our world is still trying to understand. He launched the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in which those responsible for the atrocities of apartheid would publicly confess to enable the healing of their nation. And so on April 15, 1996, the South African National Broadcaster televised the first two hours of live hearings. The rest of the hearings were presented on television each Sunday from April 1996 to June of 1998 in hour-long episodes. Can you imagine two years of weekly, hour-long episodes where those responsible for the atrocities of apartheid publicly confessed and the truth was revealed. The TRC was a community experiment in restorative justice. In the words of Pumla Gaboto Madik Azila, who served on this commission, this was and is the work of making public spaces intimate. I raise this because this is the kind of education we're not given in school. I raise this because in the lineage of heart givers and truth seekers, it's our turn to make public spaces intimate so we can explore how truth and kindness are the eternal initiations into making our deeper kinship known. In our modern American culture, the Oprah Winfrey Show created a tradition of making public spaces intimate in an effort to educate and heal aspects of our society. For 25 years, the show convened authentic public space and served as a common ground for honest questions, open public dialogue, and the exploration of those things unfinished within us and between us. From racism to addiction, whether hosting the town hall conversation in Williamson, West Virginia in 1987 around the mayor's closing of the public pool because Robert, Mike Sisko, a gay man living with AIDS, went swimming there, or convening 200 men in 2010 who were sexually abused as children, Oprah has been steadfast in her untiring effort to publicly educate all our tribes about trauma and compassion. Mark continues, yet we in America largely fear community healing. We can see this in how we treat our war veterans. Psychotherapist Edward Tick, an expert on veteran trauma, reminds us that the word anathema comes from the Greek anathema, meaning against the theme of life, against the order of life against the way of life. Tick says that all war is anathema against the way of life. That such trespasses don't end when the physical violence is over. The war continues inside those who have chosen or been forced to take life. Yet in our fear of what they've done and been through, we turn away from our veterans when they come home. Tick describes how community-centered cultures work with veterans. He says, quote, indigenous cultures watched over their warriors after their return. For example, among the Papago people of the American Southwest, after a warrior had his first experience of combat, they held a 19-day ceremony of return, using purification techniques to cleanse him, and also storytelling techniques. The war dance wasn't what Hollywood portrays it as, a bunch of savages whipping themselves into a frenzy before battle. It came after battle, 
and was a dramatic reenactment of the conflict for the tribe. So instead of having a parade and going shopping, we could use our veterans' holidays as an occasion for storytelling. Open the churches and temples and synagogues and mosques and community centers and libraries across the country and invite our veterans in to tell their stories. Mark continues, Another indigenous example of community therapy comes from the Kaluli people of New Guinea. After the death of a family member, the Holy Ones are invited to dance and sing to help the grieving process their grief. This ritual dance is called Jasaro. As they mourn, those who can't stop crying and those who can't cry at all wait for the Holy Ones to come to their village. Once there, the Holy Ones learn about the life of the person who has died. Then they dance and sing stories about that person so the family can release their feelings. As a sign of gratitude and kinship, the mourners scar the Jasaro dancers so they will carry the truth and pain of the loss for the tribe. Isn't this what we do for each other in the dance of deep friendship? When truly by the side of those who are grieving, aren't we scarred anyway in the crease of heart where we hold them? Mark continues, these public rituals work. The truth once put in the open binds us while the truth kept secret separates us. Consider this powerful story. From 1474 to 1778, Portugal was colonizing four countries in Africa. Angola, Cape Verde, Guinea-Bissau, and Mozambique. The Portuguese explorer Diogo Cao first landed in Angola in 1483. Like most European conquerors, their rule was oppressive. In an act of rebellion, a band of Angolan warriors kidnapped a ship of Portuguese soldiers once they came ashore. But instead of killing them, they took the soldiers deep into the jungle tied them up and told them the full story of their oppression, their pain and degradation and unnecessary losses. Then, without harming the soldiers, they let them go. This band of warriors did this several times. Several years later, a coup was staged to free the Angolans living under Portuguese rule, but it was the Portuguese soldiers forced to hear those stories who rose up to free the people they had abused. In how they tied up their oppressors and forced them to listen to the effects of their oppression, these Angolan warriors can be seen as ancestors of the TRC, or the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa. The power of truthful storytelling brought out in the open can't be underestimated. These warriors didn't seek revenge, but bravely told their oppressors the truth of what their actions caused. In so doing, they deepened what it means to be a warrior. Another more contemporary example of public healing also comes from Africa. Libby Hoffman, a former political science professor, founded a nonprofit organization called Catalyst for Peace. In the spring of 2008, Catalyst for Peace worked with John Kalker and the African Human Rights Organization Forum of Conscience to launch a project in Sierra Leone called Fambul Talk, which is Creole for family talk. In the aftermath of the brutal civil wars that took place in Sierra Leone from 1991 to 2002, the people maimed, wounded, orphaned, and widowed were ready to talk and listen to each other. So on March 23, 2008, on the very day the war started 17 years earlier, in the village of Kailahun, where the first shot was fired, 30 villagers gathered in a circle of chairs set out in the open. After a significant silence, a man with one arm began telling his story. After another silence, 
the one-armed man was asked if the person who cut off his arm was there. He nodded and pointed across the circle. After yet another silence, the man who lived near him came over, fell to his knees, and asked for forgiveness. Then, in their own way and in their own time, they began to ask each other, what went wrong? Such a simple and indispensable question, what went wrong? Fambol talk has had a lasting impact in the villages of Sierra Leone because following the truth-telling ceremonies, activities are organized so the newly reconciled individuals can strengthen their connection by working together for the good of the community. They partner in projects like radio listening clubs, football games, and village-initiated community farms. It's important to note that Fambol talk is not rooted in Western concepts of blame and retribution but in the African need for communities to restore wholeness with each member playing a role. Mark ends this chapter by saying we're beautifully born whole, though no one can escape the journey of trauma that undoes us. Yet, in time, we can be put back together if given the chance to know and be known thoroughly. Putting ourselves back together by finishing what is unfinished within us and between us allows community to form but each of us must find our own way to listen to what we've done to each other in order to make a university of our suffering. Each of us must find our own way to make public spaces intimate so we can help each other release our feelings. Each of us must find the lapse in our story and figure out what went wrong. This is work worth doing. Again, I just want to end this episode by circling back to the quote I started with by E.E. E. Cummings. He says, quote, may I be I is the only prayer. Not may I be great or good or beautiful or wise or strong. Today, may I be me. Five foot 11, brown hair, brown eyed, smart, serious, happy, frustrated, impatient, joyful, running, sleeping, smiling, eating, trying, believing, listening, being and becoming. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection, We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.